have a seat if you would this morning, folks. And uh, I think kids already have, yeah, they've learned this. So on the last day with Jamie, they are out the door. And I'm going to slide this over slightly. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Stephen and Jamie, for letting us uh, have a big deal. Um, I'm coming over more, okay? I did that for you at home. I don't want you to look all morning and go, move over, Pastor. Get over. Get over. I got a twitch happening here. Um, <clears throat> So I, I am, um, I'm like you, I wonder how can you transition from, you know, something like this to um, something that's pretty serious and big deal in the Bible. But we say this a lot, if you're new with us here at Grace Point and kind of putting together uh, details, maybe an impression as to what kind of church is this, is this kind of church I want to invest in and serve in and give in and live in. Um, one of the things that's very real is we love to have a blast and, and, you know, the chases were fun this morning, but we, we do, we find a way to have a blast and we, we have a, a, a lot of that. By the way, today's George Jetson's birthday. Is that right? How's that for like random? Okay. That had nothing to do. It's not in my notes. Uh, but we, we also get really serious, and we don't apologize for that, right? Because there's some things that are really serious. God, um, life, uh, the broken world we live in, the, uh, the Bible that's open in front of us. These are all things that are really serious, and it doesn't mean you have to drone on or become a pastor that sounds like he's, you know, gargling with lemonade or something. I mean, you... you, you, you but we do. We, we, we laugh at ourselves and we get serious about things we should get serious about. That said, I want to share with you some, some questions. I, I stand here today with questions on my mind as I kind of get started in my message today. Um, it's actually, the message is called Barriers. You can see that at the top of your outline. Um, Purging Prejudice was a a former title I was flirting with, and I gave up on it because I don't like, I don't like the sound of it. Uh, but barriers is real, and you'll see why in a moment. Um, so here's some of my questions: Why do seniors live in 55 plus communities? Okay, for the record, by the way, uh, by age I could move into King City right now. Okay, just so you're, you know wondering. I could even go where my dad lives, Bonaventure. Dad, you want me to come be your roommate? Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, so um, here's another. Why do teenagers attend youth group? Why are singles drawn to singles group? <laughs> Duh. <laughs> right? No, I, I'm not, I don't mean to make fun. I Actually, I mean uh, to tell you about a group of single ladies um, who came to me one time and said, you want to know why we go to singles groups? And, they, and I said, sure. Um, and they wrote me, and, and their answer was signed Sinbad, S-I-N-B-A-D. And I'm like, I have no idea what that means. So I wrote them back, and they said, duh, single income, no boyfriend, and desperate. From their own lips, folks. That's, that's what some have told me. 
So here's another one. That's, don't, don't take this the wrong way, but, but why, do, why do Chinese Baptist churches exist? And they do. Not just Baptists, but Chinese churches. Uh, why do... Um, why is there a group, and it's a wonderful group. I used to speak for them at Poly Pavilion at UCLA when I lived in L.A. Uh, they would invite me, and I was the only Caucasian invited. Maybe there, are, there were others, but I was the only one because I was speaking. So, but they were a group called KACF, Korean American Christian Fellowship. By label that says, you're here only as a guest pastor. <laughs> right? And that's cool. I was not offended. It was just fine. But why do they exist? Why, do, why are there Hispanic churches? Why are there black fellowships? And then more close to home, why are there women's Bible studies and men's roundups? So give up. So in sociology, all of those groupings refer to, uh, that I've referred to are homogeneous groups. Big word this morning. It means similar in kind and nature. That's what the words mean, homogeneous groups. Um, and though not necessarily intentional, um, they can be barriers to others. But for example, <laughs> funny example, it's real and it's, it's current. But on a not-so-infrequent basis, I'll meander my way next door to the great room on a Wednesday morning, and I'll visit with the women's Bible study, one of several. And I, I walk in there, and I, it's so phony, they don't even hardly laugh anymore, but I walk in, and a room full of women, and there's a table full of food. <laughs> and I just, I go, hi, oh, wow, and I browse around and grab it. They say, oh, no, have some. And some of you are smiling at me right now. Have some. And that really was mostly my reason for going. I was hungry. <laughs> I had run out the door without breakfast. So but um, so I don't belong there, right? And you know what? I don't belong in singles groups. Want to know why? I'm married, okay? So that makes sense. I love you, Debbie. Um, so certain groups of similar people, I hope I'm making the point, aren't necessarily bad. But today's study in our Step in Step with the Spirit series out of Acts is going to bring us face to face with those that are. Namely, barriers that block the spread of the gospel. There are a lot of barriers, and I, I hope you'll become familiar with that word so much so that it becomes part of your time with the Lord in the coming days. What are my barriers? Might be a great prayer and something to search out with Jesus. And let the Holy Spirit lead you as he has been leading me. Lots of barriers slow or altogether stop the intended spread of the gospel. Um, the gospel, just in case my hunch is correct, and it usually is in this regard, every Sunday we're together, either in the house or joining us live stream, there are people that, that have heard that word. We get it. It's a gospel minister. What is gospel? 
It's also known as the good news, okay? And you say, well, what good news? I mean, help me out with that. So I've worded something very succinctly for you. The good news that sinful humans who deserve damnation as a consequence of their sin. I get real personal. Of my sin, sinful human, sinful Steve, who deserves eternal condemnation as a consequence for my sin, comma, can have their sins fully forgiven and salvation freely granted. Incredible. You start to see and hear it in my voice, see the smile on my face. All of that through Jesus Christ, a gift. Or to put it in a single New Testament verse, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23 reports. But the free gift of God is eternal life through, for you and me, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Can I get an amen? That is good news worth applauding, right? That's good news. And you know what? Some of you applauding have been Christians for a long time, and you've never gotten over it. Some of us applauding need to go, that's true. Why am I not just tripping over myself to tell everybody the good news? Um, enter the word barriers. Barriers can very easily block me, maybe you, from sharing such good news. Uh, so I've made a partial list of gospel barriers that I, I have to tell you, I've not only seen these, but it brings me shame to admit to you, have practiced some of these. Okay? Some of you are reaching for pens. Don't be subtle about it. Grab a pen and get ready to write. These are just a partial list, but they're meant to prime the pump and have you say, oh, that's mine, or ah, mine's not on Pastor Steve's list, but I have a couple now. I'm starting to track with you. I get what you're talking about. Okay, so here's my kind of partial list of things I confess to you I've done in some, in some way, sometimes in significant ways, and I've watched others do it. Here's my list. Ethnic barriers. Economic barriers. Educational barriers. Age barriers. Um, marital status. Let's bring it really close to home. Tattoos, piercings, politics. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that online, but there's a nervous chuckle in the room right now. It's okay. Politics. And biggest of all, religion. Um, when I say religion, I don't just mean Muslims or Mormons 
or some other group that is not historically a what we would call a biblically defined um, gospel ministry. But I'm talking about the in ever-increasing population of nuns, and I don't mean convent nuns. I mean the ones that report, I'm a nun. I don't care anything about any religion. If you want an answer, I'm my own God. I get it. I, I have contact with that kind of person, and I just go, and I'm done. Not going to fight you, not going to argue. We'll find out one day if you were right. Good attitude? No. Honest attitude? I'm just telling you. Um, I think that's what I've, I've sensed that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us about today. All right? So um, my Bible, I told you, is open already. It really is. Acts chapter 10. If you're, um, John has us do this. It's a good idea. Grab your Bible, hold it up, then lay it down on your lap and open it up. All right? That's how we do it. Great, guys. So Acts chapter 10, as we get there, I want to give you a time stamp, and I do this frequently, and I will clear through the 28th chapter of Acts. And the reason for that is it's a flowing story, or we sometimes say narrative. And Acts chapter 10, just a quick time stamp of what I've defined as the first church. Some have called it the early church, and that would make us the late church um, I like first and next. So the first church is what we're reading about here in Acts. And this first church, you'll recall, began in Acts chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. I'm just capturing it quickly. In Acts chapter 2. So um, there's a day that happens there, and it's reported as the day of Pentecost. A lot of history behind that day. But it was a day that fulfilled a promise. Jesus said, I'm going to send my spirit when I leave, and he's going to come, and you will not miss it. And sure enough, in Acts chapter 2, he came and touched everybody that was in Jerusalem when he came. Okay? Uh, promised just as Jesus said. And chapter 10 comes along, and you say, how far removed are we from that? Roughly five or six years is the answer. That's what I mean by it's an ongoing journey, uh, you know, in step with the Spirit. Here's five or six years of those steps. And, um, and, and I mentioned the Holy Spirit's really important that you realize this because Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, said some, his last words, the last sentence he spoke before they watched and he ascended back to heaven like this. Anybody there was changed forever. They saw him head back to heaven, and his last words were, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will, as a result of that, Pentecost, be my witnesses to Jerusalem, which is where they were, to Judea, which is the surrounding county, if you will, to Samaria up north, another county, and to the inns of the earth. He didn't say it, but he meant tigered. Okay? You with me? Wherever you happen to be watching. It's true. So those words were in play. And along comes, like, like in the moment, 
when the Holy Spirit came, people were just, it was the talk of the town. You, you, you couldn't have been there and missed it. And Peter steps up because he's got some answers to the myriad of questions that are on people's minds. So he begins to talk, and he becomes a key player during this time. And just last time we were together, at the end of chapter 9, we know that Peter was leaving Jerusalem, and he was heading west toward what becomes the Mediterranean. We call ours the Pacific on the west. But there, it's heading west to the Mediterranean, and... um, And on his way west, he stops in a couple of locations. Lydda is one of them, and the other is Joppa or Joppa. So Peter's traveling, and everywhere he goes, he's talking about Jesus. Only when he comes to Lydda, these are in Acts chapter 9, he's part of two miracles, one in Lydda, one in Joppa. In Lydda, there's a man who's a a paraplegic, and, and he gets healed, and Then a little bit further down the road, he comes to Joppa on the coast, and he meets, uh, encounters a situation where a woman, Tabitha, has passed. And he, he, the Holy Spirit uses him to raise her to life again. So if you're hearing it for the first time, you're going, for real? Yeah. And, And your amazement mirrors the amazement that they had as if, in fact, as a result of those twin miracles that Peter took part in. Would you look at chapter 9? I just want you to see the effect it had on the whole crowd. So chapter 9, verse 35 says, when Peter, um, uh, I'm in 10, I don't back it up, getting excited. Um, Yeah, all who lived in Lydda and Sharon, which was the sort of the coastal plain, all who lived in that region, um, they, they gave God praise for this. They saw this man who was previously a paraplegic walk. He was, uh, he was able to get up, and they, look what it says, turn to the Lord. It repeats again when he went on to Joppa, and he raises this woman to life. This became known, we're told, in verse 42, and many people believed in the Lord. So we've talked about that in great detail. If you were here two weeks ago, it, no one wrote me about it, so it made, maybe didn't bother you much. You might have thought I, he was just out of time or something. But I didn't finish chapter 9. I stopped short at the last verse because I knew it would be the right introduction this morning. Would you look at 943? Uh, Peter stayed in Joppa, for some time with a tanner named Simon. Um, this simple, you go, What's that? why is that a big deal, Pastor? It's easy to just say, hey, let's move on to chapter 10 because I know a little bit about the Cornelius story. That's really worth reading. But you got to understand there's a little softening going on here in those simple words that make up verse 43. They reveal a small but significant step toward overcoming barriers with the gospel. You say, how's that? What are you reading there, Pastor? Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a, circle the word tanner. That'll give you the hint. 
So Peter's Jewish tradition, and it was deep and it was strong, um, considered contact with a carcass of a dead animal to be defiling. To leave you dirty. To cause you to have a crisis spiritually. Defiled not just in the moment, but in most cases, it required that you, um, that you're, you're, you're unclean. You recognize your, your uh, spiritual dirtiness for the rest of the day till evening. And, and, and so for, for you and me to read that Peter is actually staying with another guy named Simon, who happens to be a tanner, and we're told he stayed for some time with a man <laughs> whose livelihood, if I know what a tanner does, is uh, handling the hides of what? Dead animals. So either he had a hermetically sealed section in the house that kept Peter away from such things, or you and I got to stop and go, huh? What's going on here, Peter? Um, we're correct to see those simple words as a baby step, but a big one. Which nicely introduces chapter 10, where Luke, who's the storyteller of Acts, the same one that wrote the Gospel of Luke, introduces a surprising person named Cornelius and a surprising plan that God had for Peter who would have a hand in extending the reach of the gospel not only to Cornelius, but are you ready for it? To every human being in this place, indeed in the world. Now you're ready for chapter 10. Look at verse 1, let's read. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. That's 30 miles north of Joppa, just so you know. A centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He's a military guy. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. All right, so... Who is Cornelius? we got to understand. Here are a few facts, and Luke's just laid it out, so we'll take them in the order that he mentions them. The first is, it's the most standout feature. He's a centurion, works with the Italian regiment. He is a military commander. Centurion, like the word sounds, 100. He had command of 100 men um, from Italy. No big deal there. There were a lot of conscripted soldiers from lots of neighboring nations, but Italians, Rome, they were the real deal, okay? So he's this commander of these people, and he was sent, if you were to look at Rome, you would be looking way west from Caesarea. He was sent way east to the shores of Israel, and uh, let's call that the outpost, the extreme eastern outpost this uh, this Cornelius was sent to. 
um, it, it, it was a uh, likelihood, if not a, a certainty, that the fact that he was a Roman soldier meant that he was likely loathed by most Jews, if not all. And there's a reason for that. In that day, Rome was an occupying enemy. It'd be like uh, some country coming in here, and um, maybe if they chose not to kill us all, they decided to just take up residence and start calling the shots, change all the rules, and expect uh, your complete allegiance, submission. And they had methods for making that happen. It was not a comfortable, hey, coexistence. This was, this was a problem, and here is a man that represented that problem. Rome was an occupying power, and here Cornelius represents Rome. One historian said this of Caesarea, every faithful Jew regarded Caesarea with religious and national disdain. Herod the Great had built the, sea, built the seaport into a modern marvel and named it after Caesar Augustus. It had been, become the capital of the Roman occupation in Israel. So to the faithful Jew, the city represented everything that was wrong with Israel. Roman domination and Gentile occupation. End quote. I thought of cities like that in our country, and I won't name them. I don't want to just create a stir that, that distracts us. But cities that I, I've said that. It's a picture of everything I loathe. You ever thought that way? We live pretty close to one. tough to live here. Part of me just goes, hey, as long as it stays up there, burn, baby, burn. You know, I, is that Christian? It's a problem. We've got a lot of them on each coast, but we don't have all the fun. It's an American problem. It's a world problem. And here we have a visible representation of that problem in the ancient story. And he answered to the name Cornelius. All that in verse 1. Then comes, I'm going to just call it what I saw, a jolting contrast in verse 2. Cornelius, despite his military medals, and he wore many, working for the enemy. He was a virtuous man. Isn't that what verse 2 is saying? You would invite him to dinner. Seriously. Maybe not minus the uniform, I don't know. But you'd go, wow. I mean, don't I want people who are devout and God-fearing, generous to those in need, and praying to God regularly? Don't I want to be around people like that? How many want to be around people like that? How many want to be around the enemy that behaves that way? It's, a, it's like this weird conflict. Who are you? 
might have been some thoughts. Um, even the word Luke uses, would you look at verse 2 again, to describe the way Cornelius prayed. You see the word prayer there, right? He prayed to God regularly. It's not just what you and I do, a simple prayer, Lord bless this food or something like that. It's an intensity word. It's a much stronger word. It's a word that says he begged and he pleaded earnestly. That's who Cornelius is. He's a guy that said he pursued God, I would call that, with a passion. That's more than just prayers. Most of us pray. How many of us pray that kind of prayer that just says, God, I need, please, God. I plead with you. That's more the Cornelius spirit. What was he praying about? Well, we're not told, actually. We can safely speculate, I think, based on how the rest of the story unfolds. Um, Cornelius was a seeker of God, right? I mean, that's, that's who we're reading about here, a seeker of God. You don't pray passionately without having something in your heart. It implies not only an openness to God, but a desire to know God. That's how I'm seeing verse 2. And it reminded me of, a, of, of, of words that Jeremiah the prophet said seven centuries before Cornelius. Jeremiah 29, verse 13. You will, what does he say there? You will seek me and you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. Not just a casual popcorn prayer. Hey, God, if you're there, show up today, would you? No. It's this passion that says, God, I want to know you. I'm not leaving until. Um, by the way, that's going to come up in Acts 17 when Paul is in Athens. And he makes this statement. He says, you know, there's this unknown God here. I'm going to tell you all about him. He says, uh, if you seek him, you will find him, though he's not far from any one of you. What a great statement. We'll get to that in Acts 17. You might want to check it out today. Remember Jesus' half-brother James? He said in verse four, or uh, chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will turn his shoulder. Say, no, you got to beg? No. He will turn near to you. God will do that. And he will use many means to reach those who desire him. I want you to think about people right now. For whatever reason, there's a barrier between you and the gospel you know, the relationship you have, and them. Do you realize that God wants to use every means possible to reach them? which explains the extraordinary visit to the messenger sent by God. Look at verse 3. Let's carry on. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, Cornelius had a vision. He distinctively saw an angel of God who called to him and said, Cornelius! I love moments like I just spend so much time in these moments. I just don't go anywhere until I hear something, you know. Cornelius stared at him in fear. 
I would too. What is it, Lord? The word's kind of more common than Lord in a formal sense. It's more, sir, I'm not sure who you are, but who are you? You know, what is it? The angel answered, your, your prayers and gifts to the poor, they've come up as a memorial offering before God. That means God sees and smells. Now send men to Joppa, pointing south, to bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter because Simon was staying at another Simon's house. So they distinguish him, Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner whose house is by the sea. This is so, so cool. Look on. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius immediately calls two of his servants and a devout soldier, three of them, who's one of his attendants. He tells them everything and that, that had happened and then sends them to Joppa. We might say, if you'll pardon the pun, he was touched by an angel, right? I think that's true. I think Cornelius is just minding his own business. And God says, okay, I'm coming through right now, and I'm calling your name. The angel, after calling his name, he, he, he connects, I think, a huge dot for Cornelius. He, he says that your prayers and your piety, they've, they've been noticed, they've been heard, they've been received by God. What you've, what you've done is not futile, it's for real. And then he he receives precise instructions, Cornelius does, about the, the place and the plan and even the person that he's supposed to see in verse 5. And, and notice Cornelius followed it without delay to the T and sends them. Meanwhile, south, 30 miles in Joppa, the Lord was preparing Peter. And I just got to say it. Peter's on a mission, but this became a very unexpected mission plan. Pick up in verse 9 with me. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city of Joppa, these three, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then, on top of this, this vision, he hears a voice that tells him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, came Peter's reply. I've never eaten anything like that that's impure and unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Don't call anything impure that God has called clean. This happened three times, and immediately then the sheet was taken back to heaven. Big, big moment. Peter had to, when the, when the sheet was removed, he's sitting there thinking, you want me to eat What? As we, we discussed earlier, Peter was, a, was a, not just a Jew, but a devout Jew. He, he was a man where his heritage made it particularly 
onerous for him to have contact, much less kill and eat anything in verse 12. You're kidding me. Must have been his initial reaction. So God uses this heavenly teaching aid, you teachers, and lowers a sheet that I don't think it's a mistake or it, I don't think it's insignificant to say four corners had no importance. What do we say about the world today? There are four corners of the world. It's just a speculation, but why not? Could it be a way of saying, go everywhere. And everywhere you go, you're going to find things on the sheet that, that are going to make you go, huh? Supposed to be okay with that? Um, to consume the contents, uh, boy, you just promised me with a show of hands, you'll read Leviticus chapter 11 today. Okay? It is filled with the stuff that's on the sheet. Okay? It's like in <laughs> Gecko made the list. Okay? You can't eat a gecko. Who would want to anyway? But, okay, you can't eat certain animals. Birds are mentioned. Um, spotted owls. It's good news in Oregon, right? Uh, I mean, eagles, you can't eat that kind of stuff. It's all listed in Leviticus 11, and to do so or have any contact with is going to make you spiritually dirty. My, my paraphrase, my words. Ceremonially unclean uh, for the rest of the day. So he's puzzled to understand the meaning of this vision, and, and he's filled with resistance. That's what verse 14 is. I've thought of different reactions if I saw and heard something from heaven. And I don't think I have a, a scenario that I've come up with where I would say, never to God. Maybe, maybe you have a different approach. But I tend to stand there and tremble and my eyes get big and I listen carefully and I say nothing and I go and do but so deep was Peter's loyalty to the law that he stood there and said, are you kidding me? I can't. That's resistance to the nth degree. That explains why verse 16 says he had to be told again and again and again three times. What is it about Peter and three Pete's? Really? You know, seriously. How many, remember Mark 14? How many times did Peter say, I don't know Jesus? Three times. Remember in John 21 when Jesus specifically came to Peter and said three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Remember, I'm the guy that you said you didn't even know. Do you love me? Three times he said it. And then here he's challenged by Jesus to change his bias toward Gentiles. Three times he's told that. Raising some questions. These aren't just my questions. I come up with them and I have to wrestle with them. But what does it take for you to see and hear and heed, heed God telling you to change it up? 
My question's simple this morning. Is there a prejudice that you have toward people that God's calling your attention to this morning? It took a lot for Peter to change his flawed view of Gentiles. I want to finish this first half by reading verses 17 to 23. Would you go there? So Peter's wondering about, remember the sheet was taken back. Wondering about the meaning of the vision. And while that was happening, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, I missed these words many times when I've read this before. The Spirit spoke. Simon, three men are looking, there's three again, are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied as this passage began, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by, look at this, all the Jewish people up in Caesarea. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house up there so that he could hear what you have to say. And a lot is in one verse. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Um, the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter in verses 19 and 20 here. I imagine this. I imagine the Holy Spirit putting his arm around Peter, just as Jesus did in John 21, and, uh, and saying, hey, I want to tell you something about Gentiles. Um, and he speaks kindly and directly to Peter and says, you know something, um, clear back in Genesis when I told some things to Abraham, I told it, it, it wasn't just about the nation Israel. It's about the world through Israel who would hear about Messiah, my answer to sin, my son. So there's this really cool start where the Holy Spirit's saying those things, and then it's followed by this very brief at the, before they even come in, apparently, there's this meet and greet with Cornelius' men, and it was very impactful to Peter. It had to be. When you're standing there, maybe arms folded, you see a couple of guys in uniform, maybe just one, and, and you know they're from Caesarea, and they work for the man. And you're, you're, you're stiff. You're hard. Maybe a little cold. So they're, they're respectful, and I'm sure because they knew, that, they knew the view that Jews had of them. This was no secret. They're Gentiles. Cornelius is too. Nobody likes you. At least not Jews. And they are definitely off limits, which explains, I think, why, why their reference to Cornelius as being a, man, a Gentile respected by all the Jews in Caesarea. They also describe him 
as I mentioned in same way in chapter or verse 2 of this chapter, they describe him as a righteous and God-fearing man. And I think that those labels might have done this to Peter. Wow. Really? How can that be? How can that be so for a Roman Gentile? A military man at that. So we're going to pick up next week um, in verse 24 and um, talk about how, um, how much takeaway is going on here. But um, I'll give you a heads up. Verse 34 tells you, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism as a takeaway from what's ahead. Um, clearly, um, the Holy Spirit was at work pointing out barriers. And this morning we're reading about this gospel barrier that, frankly, would block the flow of the gospel to any Gentile living in or around Peter and other Jews in that time. So, so at the end here, um, Peter's been given a go signal by God to share the gospel with a Roman officer, and he had a choice. So do I, and so do you. Whether to go and do what God had clearly directed him to do, or to choose not to. Basic choice. And when I thought of that as I was finishing my work on this message, um, I was thinking about another man and not me this time. I was thinking about a man who lived actually eight centuries before Peter. Um, a prophet by the name of Jonah. Who was given a similar stretching assignment. Don't you think? Um, he was given that assignment by God to go to Nineveh, north, east. And... The text says in four chapters that make up the book bearing Jonah the prophet's name that um, he went as far as possible in the opposite direction. Maybe you made this connection in your mind already. It's the same location that Peter's in, Joppa. God told Jonah in Jerusalem, go and go to Nineveh instead he goes to Joppa, and he, he avoids at all cost any interaction with off-limits people that filled the streets of Nineveh. He refused God's missionary plan and curiously went to this same location. However, unlike Peter, when he boarded the ship, he, um, he had to have a major course correction, bigger than Peter's by far. Why did he want to stay away from Nineveh? Well, we can guess at that, but the Bible actually gives us some answers. Look it up in the fourth chapter especially of Jonah's story. I can give you a little hint. It has to do with God's desire for all people, good and bad, 
Americans and Russians. Moral people and immoral people. Law-abiding people and lawless anarchists. See how the barriers things comes into focus? So I'd like you to bow as we get ready to sing a song and be on our way. Um, I'm going to ask you a question as we bow our heads. Where has God told you to go? There's an assumption in my question that he's told every single one of us to go. I really believe that with all my heart. Say, well, that's for Brad Butcher and Billy Graham because they're evangelists. No, you have the gospel. You get to tell as well. It's another mom that you walk and stroll with your kids. It's a co-worker for you. Somebody that uh, is a neighbor and they got signs in their yard that tell you a whole lot about what they believe. But you have the Savior of the world. So do I. Who says, tell them. Where has God told you to go? Is it, when you're thinking about it, is it also clear in your mind what he's told you to tell them? Tell them how you, as a sinner, found the good news that God wants to forgive me. Not, not by attending church or being a good guy or devout or reverent, but because I turned to Jesus for forgiveness. Because I deserve punishment, but God said, no, I will take the place Um, so who's, who's he told you to tell and are you preparing to go across the street, across the country, some other place in the world? Have you heard God saying, you know, it's time for you. You got 10 years, be a missionary. Are you going to go like this story tells us at once or are th are th is there stuff in the way? And why is it in the way? Don't be a barrier to the gospel reaching all. How lovely on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, said Isaiah. I want, I want to be that guy, Lord, in my neighborhood on Luke Lane, in places that have been off limits in my, in my thinking. I want you to use me everywhere I go. Talk about you. And I pray right now that you would not let a, a single one of us leave here without saying, God, Help me take down the barriers so that your truth can flow through me. It's all about you, Jesus.
Christ in me is the hope of glory. Help me to tell it to everyone.